So we can fantasize about being on a beach completely by ourselves. And I've had that. I was like, I remember being on a beach one time and for some reason, no one was there. It's like, ah, oh, this is heaven. And I was like, wait, my vision of heaven doesn't have any other people? <laughs> That's so sad. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host of the Beyond Speaking podcast. And today we have on uh, Sean Acor, who is the author of the new book, Big Potential, uh, also The Happiness Advantage, one of the most viewed uh, TED Talk speakers of all time. Sean, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. I was looking forward to it. Now, I love stories, and I love the story that you use to open up big potential. Um, and, uh, and it's fascinating for me, just as somebody who loves history, nature, and everything else. What Can you share that story that you use to kind of lead off your point for big potential? Sure. So, the whole, po- the whole point of big potential is this idea of exploring the science of interconnected success. So, there's not just individuals that are succeeding, but how do you get entire communities to flourish. Um, And how do you do that by connecting to the ecosystem around you? So I start the book with a story about a biologist who in 1935 was going down a river in Southeast Indonesia, and he was supposed to make it back to his camp before night fell. And he didn't make it back in time, which is a problem because he's floating down a river in the jungle (laughs) in the dark, just panicked. And he looks up at one of the mangrove trees lining the river uh, expecting a predator to jump out of the dark at him. And all of a sudden, the tree got struck by lightning. And then, as lightning never does in nature, the lightning struck the exact same place again, lighting up that tree. And then, in this reality-bending moment, every single mangrove tree on one side of the river got struck by lightning for 100 yards on one side. And when his faculties and his vision recovered, he realized that the lightning wasn't coming down. It was coming out from the trees. And it turns out that the... Uh, trees were covered with millions of bioluminescent lightning bugs that for some reason, um, first of all, that'd be amazing just seeing millions <laughs> of these lightning bugs, but they were covering all of these trees, every inch of them. But for some reason, the lightning bugs were lighting up and going dark at the exact same time, simulating almost a lightning strike. So he went back to the United States, wrote up this scientific paper called The Miracle in the Mangroves, The Case of the Synchronous Lightning Bugs of Southeast Indonesia. And no one believed him and he lost his job because (laughs) the whole point of being a a lightning bug is to light up in the dark to increase your chances of sexual reproduction. So why in the world would you light up when the rest of your competition is lit up? And mathematicians knew that this was impossible because for order to come out of chaos, someone has to lead it. So who was the leader amongst these lightning bugs getting everyone to light up all at one time? It was impossible. So... Um, Eight decades later, two researchers in MIT found um, something amazing. Um, This is years after this man passed away. This happened just a few years ago. These researchers at MIT found that when lightning bugs light up individually, like they do across the globe, that's just how we assume lightning bugs act, their chances of their success rate uh, at reproduction per night is 3%, which is still pretty good. But it turns out that if they time their pulses as a community, if they light up all together, which they only have figured out how to do in one small portion of southeast Indonesia and one small portion of the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. When the lightning bugs time their pulses together, turns out the success rate goes from 3% to 82% per bug, <laughs> which is incredible. And it's not like one bug's doing really well at the system, right? <laughs> like, going, guys, best night of my life. No, what was happening was 
the entire system was doing orders of magnitude better than we thought was possible because we assumed a survival of the fittest mentality for the world. That's what we thought nature was teaching us. And what we're actually finding now that we have big data where we can look not just at individuals but entire systems, what we're finding is that it's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the best fit with the ecosystem around us. And what we're finding is that if you are able to enhance those around you, if you're able to expand power out to them, if you're able to time your pulses to light up as an interconnected community, instead of just hyper-comparing and hyper-competing, turns out the success rate rises not just for a few of the individuals in the system, but the entire system does orders of magnitude better than, than we thought was possible, which is why I titled the book Big Potential. It's looking at not what we can do in terms of self-help, um, which is small potential. What we're looking at is how by connecting to that ecosystem of potential around us, do we see more of our potential as well? Now, it's pretty fascinating. You use a lot of different examples in this, you know, whether it's this or even, you know, the battles and chicken coops and that sort of thing. But how does it kind of translate over into the human world? Like we've, we've been brought up so much on competition. Like how do you make that transition? So I went into two of the most... Uh, highly competitive places. So I, I started my research actually at Harvard. I spent 12 years there trying to understand what creates happiness for people and what the connection is with success. And one of the things we found is that in this hyper-competitive environment, 80% of the students were going through depression, that happiness was actually hard despite being in such a successful place because of the competition that they were experiencing. So I went out to test to see if I could predict who amongst the, the college students there at Harvard would rise to the top? Who would be the most successful based upon certain traits that they had as individuals? So I tested them everything. I looked at how much they were sleeping, what their grades were, what their familial income was, their SAT scores. And I did this huge, this huge data set back at the time, and my computer kept crashing because the data set was <laughs> so huge because I was looking at all these different variables, and I was so frustrated because I spent a year doing this, and there was nothing in the data. There was no pattern connecting their individual traits to their success rates in terms of their happiness, their um, graduation rates, and their, or their grades at graduation, and their um, income when they graduate. Um, except at the very end, I found one thing that was highly predictive, and it was their social connection score, the breadth, the depth, and the meaning, and their social relationships while they were there. And if they had social connection, all three of those success outcomes rose dramatically. They lost it. All three of those suffered dramatically. So while, while I was doing this and finding that the only thing that was predictive of the individual success wasn't the individual traits of the people in a hyper-competitive world like Harvard, it was their ability to connect to the people around them. At the same time, Google, another highly competitive, highly, you know, um, successful organization was testing almost the exact same thing. They were going out, they went out to 110,000 employees looking to see if they could detect what were the individual traits that would cause somebody to be a superstar and then how do you put those superstars into the perfect teams so that you could just replicate that hiring practice across the globe. It's a very Google thing to do. <laughs> and at the end of the project, the head researcher said, we're Google, we're amazing at finding patterns there is no pattern in the data. There is no pattern connecting the individual traits to the success rates that those teams were having. What was predictive was the social cohesion on the teams. It was the, um, the psychological safety to have a voice within that environment. Um, were you able to um, 
to express your strengths within the team? And did you feel connected to the people that you were working with? If you had those, the team flourished. If you don't, it doesn't. And it's the same thing we see on sports teams as well. You can have incredible superstars, but without chemistry, they can collapse. And so as we've been looking at this more and more, if we really want to see uh, our success rates rise and our happiness levels rise, we need to look at it not just from an individual perspective, but we need to be including others in our pursuit of happiness and success. For example, if I want to improve my health, if I stop smoking, my health improves. But if everyone around me is still smoking, I'm still not going to see the full potential of my health. So we need to actually find a way of being able to connect to everyone around us in a very special and unique way so that we could actually achieve that big potential. So it's almost less of a, of a self-improvement thing, what you're saying, but you, you have to figure out ways to help others improve at the same time. That's right. Because what we're finding is that these, these virtuous cycles, when that occurs, uh, instead of a vicious cycle where one bad thing leads to another one, making the next you know, failure even more likely to happen, these virtuous cycles that we've been studying within these systems occur when, when one person has a success that it garner, that person garners more resources, making the next success more likely and more likely. What we saw with the with the lightning bugs, for example, is a beautiful example of it because when they timed their pulses together, their light became stronger. So all the fireflies from the jungle had an increased likelihood of coming and seeing this brighter light. So more and more of the potential mates would come there. And then the other fireflies, the male fireflies, would come and add their light as well, trying to figure out what was working so well for this group because their light got brighter and brighter. Supposedly, you can see parts of those jungles light up from a mile away from the sky because the light becomes so strong. What they're creating was a virtuous cycle. And what we're finding is that if you as an individual want to see more of your potential, we can't just be doing it thinking about how I'm going to overcome this hill by myself. We need to be looking at the entire ecosystem around us, which led to my, my favorite study right now, which is um, two researchers out in Virginia found if you're looking at a hill you need to climb in front of you, if you look at that hill by yourself, your brain actually shows you a picture of a hill that is 10 to 20% steeper than a hill of the exact same height you perceive while standing next to a friend who's going to climb it with you. So the inclusion, <laughs> isn't that amazing? The inclusion of another person changes your, your picture of reality and those challenges in front of us look 10 to 20% steeper if we think we're alone in the pursuit of happiness and success or we're doing it with other people. Yeah, so I'm in a position here at work, in a leadership position. I'm also a softball coach. I, I coach a 12U softball girl, uh, t- girls softball team. Uh, what advice would you have for me as a leader to get this going uh, in, in either both of those places? So in Big Potential, I kind of outline these five umbrella traits that people who achieve big potential are able to um, attain um, or that they possess. Um, They surround themselves with positive people, so they create an entire star system around them. Um, They enhance other people, praising in the right way, um, which I'll come right back to. They expand power out to people, uh, deputizing them to be able to make positive change as well. They defend the system against the negative, and then they help sustain those gains. So in short form, if I was going through that list, like one of the things that um, we've been finding a lot is, you know, I'm a positive psychologist. So when I look at how do you improve a team, one of the very first things we look at is praise and recognition because there's incredible research on how impactful that is. But some of the research we're seeing on it was um, had a sinister side to it as well. And the reason for that was that 
a lot of the praise that was being done wasn't praise. It was actually comparison. Wow, you threw faster than anyone else today. You're the fastest runner we have on this team. You're the smartest person we have in this classroom. Wow, you're the best looking person on our team. You're, you know, you, you had more talk. You know, I'll get it sometimes out of talks. Like occasionally someone will come up to me and be like, you're the best speaker we ever had here or, or that we had today. And then one time that happened, one of my friends who was another speaker was standing right next to me and, you know, hearing this and, you know, it didn't actually enhance me because on the one hand, they just diminished uh, the person who was standing next to me. Mm. But also, I know I'm not always the best speaker for sure. So what that means is now I'm imbalanced in the future trying to decide my worth based upon whether or not I'm the best within that space, which isn't how we should actually be doing it. So what we did is we, and what I would suggest, you know, uh, within the sports uh, place, and I'm, I'm working actually some, with uh, some NFL teams right now, and we've been doing this with uh, some uh, professional athletes and Olympic athletes, um, is moving away from comparison-based praise. So you could still praise somebody for, you know, I love your comedic timing in your, in your talk, or I love that you have research in your top talk. That doesn't diminish anyone else. As soon as you add in the comparison in there, you're the fastest, the best, the smartest within the space, immediately you're actually diminishing, diminishing the rest of the ecosystem while trying to raise up that person. So increasing the amount of praise, but actually finding a way of praising the base is one of the ways that we look at for big potential. What we've been looking at are things like... Uh, is prism-based praise. So instead of light coming in and praising one person, the person who just scored, a, you know, a, you know, got an RBI or got a, a home run, right? You could cheer on that person, but that person also just got the reward. <laughs> they just <laughs> scored. They also have everyone cheering for them. In that moment, that's a great opportunity to, you know, praise the people that, you know, you know, it's so great that we even had this opportunity because somebody was already on first base, you know, or the, it, it's, you know, it's so great that, you know, you know, you were able to do so well in practice today because I didn't want to come out to practice in the rain, but, you know, some of the people on the team decide we should do this. Or this is thanks to the fans who are cheering for us right now. So what you're doing is you're ex expanding that praise out to the base that supports those gains in the first place. Um, but then also, you know, celebrating the wins as much as possible as a collective group. That's just how people sustain those gains. Defending against the negative that comes into the system, you know, expanding power out, letting people help you coach instead of feeling like all the burden comes on you. Those are all kind of things we look at when we look at teams about how we can get people to um, to pursue a big potential idea instead of feeling like they're trying to be successful alone on a team. So you are an amazingly successful researcher, speaker, and author. So just so our audience isn't too starstruck, can you tell us about the first 10 or 15 seconds of you meeting Oprah? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I had never met a celebrity at that point, and uh, <laughs> I thought I'd be normal and wasn't at all. So I saw her in my brain. Does it, I, she invited me to her home in Montecito, California. So I was already nervous, and I saw her, and my brain just shut off. And they had these three cameras filming this beautiful and organic <laughs> first meeting with Oprah. And uh, my brain just turned off, and she, <laughs> she was like, Sean, Sean, Sean. And I didn't know the protocol. Like, Oprah, Oprah, Oprah. So I said nothing. <laughs> I just stared at her, but she had her hands up. So I gave her a high five slash hug slash you know, hand holding and we couldn't let go. And we started rotating in a circle while we were dancing <laughs> just with my panicked eyes staring at her. They literally had to shut off the cameras for the first time in a thousand interviews, they said. Um, so if anyone ever sees that Super Soul Sunday episode where I see her for the first time, that was the second time because we had to refilm the whole thing. Um, 
But a few minutes later, she makes you feel so comfortable, you'll tell her anything. And the interview is really talking about how do we how do we actually achieve happiness even when it doesn't feel like it's a choice anymore given um, changes that are occurring in our world or stresses that we have at work or at home? How do we find that type of happiness? And what, what are kind of those steps that you take or that you talk about there or, or from here? Sure. Um, well, I think the most important learning I had was, well, actually, so when they finished the first hour of the interview, which was all we were supposed to have, I turned to her while they were breaking down the cameras and I said, I'm so disappointed we didn't get to talk about how I went through depression because it's so easy to hear all this research and be like, yeah, of course he's happy. He's a happiness researcher. His wife's a happiness researcher. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, if somebody's seen my TED talk, my sister's a unicorn. So like literally <laughs> all these positive things, you know, and of course, of course I'd be happy. Right. And then if someone hears Oprah, they'd be like, well, you know, take your life right now, take all your concerns and worries and challenges, and then add in all of her wealth and celebrity friends and and a private jet to get everywhere. It's got to be easy to be happy in this world if you're Oprah. And she turned to me and she said, Sean, I went through two years of depression at the height of my career when um, Beloved didn't do as well as I wanted to, and I shattered. And I told her I went through two years of depression while I was at Harvard teaching the students how not to become depressed themselves. And we turned back on the cameras, she turned them back on, and we did a whole second hour that was so much deeper than the first. And what I told her, the turning point for me was, up to that point, I was really good at checking off individual metrics in my life. So when I got depressed, I thought, I can, I can solve this myself. I don't need to burden anyone else. I'll be there for other people, but I can solve this on my own. Um, and I went deeper and deeper into depression. And the turning point was where I had to turn to my eight closest friends and family, the people that were in my ecosystem of potential. And I had to tell them, um, I've been depressed for two years. I had no idea how to get out of this, and I really need your help. And the groundswell of support was amazing. They were calling me, meeting up with me to make sure I was okay and that I was surrounded by people that loved me. But as soon as I let them in, suddenly that hill in front of me dropped by 10 to 20% in my brain. Mm Because what we're finding is that that challenge dropped because now I wasn't overcoming depression by myself. I was doing it with other people. And more important than that was now I was allowing for reciprocal friendship. So I could hear things that they were dealing with. And then what got me out of bed in the morning wasn't just, am I depressed or not? It was, I need to make, get out of bed to meet up with my friend because I know how lonely she is right now. And so instead of trying to light up individually at Harvard, trying to be the best and the smartest and do everything on our, on our own, which wasn't working and created 80% of depression at Harvard, um, that's work debilitating. So you're, even not even, you're not able to achieve your academic potential in the midst of that. Instead, we tried to light up as an interconnected community, helping one another come out. And not only was that what got me out of depression, but that's that's what pulled me into positive psychology, learning about how this happiness research can't just be a self-helped idea, but that we must pursue happiness and success in an interconnected way. I think like in trying to measure this, so so you as a researcher have to measure things. And I think as people, like it's so easy to measure money. Like this person's got $10 more than this other person, or this person's grade point average is 0.1 higher than the other. What measurables should someone use instead of those? It's so hard because as soon I, I believe that comparison, and this is not my quote, uh, but I love it, comparison is a thief of joy. Um, <laughs> as soon as you get into the, the idea of comparing your, yourself to other people and then determining your worth based upon that comparison, and that's the key point, um, then we've already lost out because then the 
only person who could be happy is the richest person in the world. Mm -hmm. And the richest person in the world, you know, might have, you know, problems with their relationship. (laughs) So they might actually have other things to envy with other people, or they might, you know, not be the best athlete when they go out to play basketball and they feel bad about themselves every time they go play basketball, right? That if comparison is the way that we're judging our happiness, it will never work out for us. I would say instead trying trying to find value in things that are not comparison-based. So yes, I can feel like I am proud of myself because I can speak a little French or I'm proud of myself because I wrote a book or I'm proud of myself because I ran a mile and a half. Now, as soon as I compare that to my friends who are running five miles a day, I should feel really bad about myself. But why would I do that? (laughs) A mile and a half is so much better than I was doing two weeks ago. So for me, being able to run a mile and a half is is a success. And so I'm finding that as soon as I start to hyper-compare when I go on social media, like if I get five likes for a post that I have or a photo, you know, I should feel good about maybe those five likes for myself or not even judge myself based upon those. But as soon as I start comparing myself to other people who have a thousand likes or 15 million um, followers, then of course I'm, uh, it, it just creates greater levels of unhappiness. So instead of trying to judge my value that way, I flip it around. So one example of that is social media, which is where I was feeling a lot of that hyper comparison. And we know a lot of adolescents are feeling that as well. Actually, all of us are feeling it. Um, and so what Every time I'd go on there, it was backfiring, and I'd leave social media feeling less about myself because of those comparisons. So now what I do, I spend the same amount of time on social media, but when I go on, I'm just hearting other people's posts, and I'm commenting about (laughs) how great their idea is, or how great their vacation looked, or congratulations on that promotion, and then I leave. But I feel rejuvenated because I've just meaningfully activated many of the people that are in my space, and sometimes they're motivated oftentimes to be able to connect back to me as well. But I feel leaving like I've actually had agency. I've been able to love them instead of going in trying to feel loved, which every time was backfiring. Well, I love that kind of raising others up. One of, one of my favorite stories in your book is the, is the Kaiser medical story about how, you know, they've, they've been so specialist, so, so sort of top focused, and then they, they flip that around by providing training to receptionists and others. So, so tell me about how you came across that and then and what your thoughts are on that process. So Kaiser Permanente is this, uh, first of all, incredible, but also giant um, uh, medical group in California. Uh, so they're dealing with literally life or death decisions on a daily basis. They have very highly specialized you know, doctors, physicians who work with them. Um, and what happens oftentimes in organizations like that is you get hierarchical. And you think, well, only certain people can perform certain actions, especially because you don't want lawsuits. So the, at the top will be the decision makers, you know, who will be the doctors. And then below that will be the nurses and nurse practitioners. And then you've got, you know, staff and administrators that, you know, keep getting pushed lower and lower in the pyramid of power that's there. What they did at Kaiser was fantastic. They had a program called I Save the Life program. And what they did was they trained um, they're receptionists who are hired without any medical training at all. They're hired to be receptionists, but they train them to actually have the opportunity to, when somebody calls in for um, uh, for you know uh, an earache that they're having, they would also have their files in front of them so they could be like, 
actually, I've noticed you haven't had a mammogram screening or haven't, I noticed you haven't had a prostate um, cancer screening. Uh, would you like to set one up right now? I can actually set one up for you in the system, even though you've been calling about something different that is coming in. So the, what was happening in those moments is they were expanding power out beyond the current system. So the doctors who are feeling exhausted in the system where they can only see patients for like 10 or 5 minutes a day because there's so much demand that was actually going on, instead of just saying, nope, these are the only people that can actually be able to help uh, improve somebody's uh, well-being, they actually deputized the secretaries, the receptionists, to actually be medical providers themselves. So what they were doing was they were checking in to make sure that they were getting the screenings. And then, importantly, they quantified what was actually happening on the backside of it. And what they found is that several, now several thousand lives have actually been saved, and they, they consider a life saved to be uh, a screening that was set up through this program by the receptionist that was caught by the receptionist and then scheduled and where they found a cancer that was life-threatening. And thousands of people have already been saved by these receptionists. And you could hear the pride in their voice, not only from the receptionists, but from the whole system, that they felt like that they were allowing more and more people to be part of caring for the patients that were coming in, not just certain specialized people within inside the organization. And that's all about expanding power out. In the same way that when I got depressed, I expanded power out to my friends deputizing them to actually have power to improve my levels of happiness as well instead of trying to carry that burden alone. Same thing that a professional athlete will do instead of trying to take all the shots themselves, actually being out and enhancing the other people on the floor, getting getting them involved so that when that athlete is exhausted and needs to go to the bench, that their bench is strong enough to keep the game going until he or she can get back in. And out of curiosity, did, did they do any follow-up about how this affected the receptionists' like kids and family at home? Did they save those any of those lives too? That is a great idea. They haven't tested that. They did test their engagement levels, like how engaged the receptionists felt in the work and their likelihood to stay. Those both rose dramatically. But what we're seeing from this big data um, sets when we actually get them is that that these changes have cascading and contagious impacts upon our families and communities as well. So I wouldn't be surprised. And that's why we're actually spending, I'm spending a lot of my time right now working out in the communities and the schools, not just with companies anymore. Um, We're working with all the schools in Flint, Michigan right now, trying to bring in the positive psychology interventions we were doing at companies and bring that into students who are living in the midst of a water crisis and students who are living in the midst of cyclical poverty trying to find a way of if you can get their levels of optimism to rise, what we're finding is their test scores improve, their resilience improves, their grit improves, and it creates cascading benefits back out into the community as well. And we're getting some really, we're having some really amazing results. Uh, both Good Morning America and the Today Show uh, did uh, Annuous News World Report, just ac- actually did an article on what we were doing out at the schools. Um, and what we found, uh, uh, Good Morning America came out for one of the schools we did with uh, in Illinois, and we were working with an entire school district up there. There was this 73rd percentile of academic achievement, which is pretty good in Illinois. But we came in and created these positive interventions, gratitude exercises, expanding power out to you know fourth graders so that they could have positive effect upon the sixth graders, and and doing random acts of kindness and teaching meditation. And over the four-year period of time we've worked with them, they've gone from the 73rd academic achievement level percentage-wise to the 95th percentile in Illinois and now top 2% nationwide. So we're seeing stunning impacts. So it's not just 
let's find greater levels of happiness and well-being. This is the key to improving our schools as well. If we're not just trying to do this alone, but we're doing this as a community that's lighting up together in the dark. So with community being so important, one thing you mentioned in there is, you know, people have this sort of isolation fantasy sometimes, like in a negative way where there's, you know, no kids, no boss, no job, no responsibilities. They're just out on an island somewhere. Why do you think people have that? Um, I think it's because we're overwhelmed. So it's one of the things I, I, I discussed later in the book uh, in uh, a chapter about defending the system, because if we're going to be highly interconnected, we need to find a way of inoculating ourselves against the negative that surround us, right? So the whole book is about how we need an interconnected pursuit. But as soon as you're connected, you're also connected to people who are negative, who are sick, who are exhausted themselves, um, or who have demands upon us, right? And every time you're in a community, there's demands. The more people you put in a house, the more demands you have within that system. So there might be opportunity for meaning and love, right, in a household with 16 kids, but there's also a lot of demands, right? I, I have two kids and there's a lot of demands, you know? Um, and then you have their friends over and it just it gets amplified. So I think we have this fantasy that if I could just eliminate all of these things, then maybe I'd really see my, hap- my happiness rise and my success rates rise. Um, I had a friend, a very successful author, who uh, felt like he wasn't able to write his book uh, at home with his kids and with all his friends calling and like work calling all the time. So he rented a house um, for the summer and uh, he uh, up in Northern California, and he, he was just going to um, isolate himself out there and write his book as fast as he could so he could be home with his family. And for the first three days he was out there with no distractions, he just wrote so much all at once for the first three days. And then the fourth day, he hit the biggest writer's block he said he's ever had. And then he <laughs> stayed there for another two weeks, didn't write another page, and finally came home. <laughs> and the reason for it was, what I told him was... The, he divorced himself from the very reason of why, he's, of why he's writing a book in the first place. We're writing a book because we want to share it with other people, or we want our kids to be proud of us, or we want you know, schools to be able to read it. And if you're completely isolated from that, you lose the meaning behind it as well. So we can fantasize about being on a beach completely by ourselves, right? And I've had that. I was like, I remember being on a beach one time, and for some reason, no one was there. It was like later at night, and I was like, ah, oh, this is heaven. And I was like, wait, my vision of heaven doesn't have any other people? <laughs> That's so sad, right? That, that what really provides long-term happiness and meaning in our life, uh, the greatest predictor of our happiness is social connection. So we might want to decrease some of that connection for a little bit to quiet the noise in our lives. But long-term, what really creates meaning and value is that social connection community in the first place. So one last question here. Uh, what did one Maasai warrior say to the other Maasai warrior? <laughs> so this is their greeting. Oh, you, wow, you made it all the way to the conclusion. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I didn't know where to put this in the book. I kind of wanted to write up at the beginning, but Maasai warriors who are supposed to be some of the fiercest warriors in the world, they're greeting for one another. They don't say, hey, how are you doing? Right? Their greeting, uh, which we would say here in the West, their, their greeting is, how are the children? And the proper answer back, you know, if everything is good, is all the children are well. And when I heard that, I was like, I love this. And this is such a surprise for such a fierce community that instead of asking, how are you doing, which is such an individual question, the question assumes I can know how you're doing partly by how are all the children doing and not just your children, right? This is the same question you ask to somebody who's single, who doesn't have kids of their own, right? Because what it's saying is that we can't be 
well unless all the children are well. And I think that what that gets back to is this idea of we can't actually sustain happiness for a long time if everyone around us is miserable. We can't sustain continued uh, successes in our in our life if everyone around us is being diminished or feel like less than because of being around us. That if we really want to see our highest levels of happiness and success, we need to be making sure that all the children are well, all the children are well, and that we need to find a way of being able to lift up people around us so that we can all shine brighter together. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more about today's guest, visit beyondspeak.com. This episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was me, Eric Woody. Brian Lord was your host and executive producer. Shout out to special consultant Lauren D. of D. Associates and Robert Borquez for that sweet, sweet intro. If you've listened this far, do me a favor and justify my existence and salary by checking out another episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast.